doctors because she had the ability somehow to um, predict the future. And when her master saw that, when, when, when Paul then saw her, he cast the demon out of her and uh, the, the master saw that the prophet was gone, their hope of prophet was gone because this demon was cast out of her. She no longer could tell the future. And it's angered them because they, Paul hid it their pocketbooks. And so they seized Paul. Silas dragged them into the marketplace where they instituted a riot. Uh, instigated a riot. And, and so with this riot, then, in order to keep peace, the city authorities threw Paul and Silas in prison. But God was still working there, even in prison. When Paul and Silas were there, of course, they were singing hymns of praise to God. They didn't go unnoticed by the prisoners or the, the jailer, but something was different about these men. Normal people don't normally sing praise to God in stocks. So when an earthquake loosed their chains, they didn't run. The jailer asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then there came that famous response in Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. His whole household believed. They were baptized that very night and the church in Philippi was growing. And soon afterwards, Paul and Silas were told to leave the city, which they did. Now, that's about all that we know of the book of, of, of what took place in Philippi from the book of Acts. We get some clues in the book of Philippians, but really we don't know very much uh, about the church in Philippi other than that. Uh, but we do know that even as Paul traveled off and beyond to Thessalonica and to Berea and to Athens and spending 18 months in Corinth, that Paul was far from the city of Philippi, but he was near to the hearts of the Philippians who gave to his ministry financially on a couple of occasions. At the writing of the letter of Philippians, Paul finds himself under house arrest in Rome. He is chained to a Roman soldier, unable to travel. And when the Philippians heard about his state, they sent a gift, a financial gift to him, uh, once again through Epaphroditus. And it stirred Paul's heart towards the church in Philippi. And he wrote essentially then a thank you note to them. And that's what the book of Philippians is about. Uh, I've identified the main message of the book with these words, Rejoice in the Gospel. We see a lot of joy and rejoicing in, in the book of Philippians. Three different occasions. He commands those in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. There's other places where Paul shows his joy. But it's not just joy for happiness sake. It's joy because of God's work in the Gospel. The call of Philippians is a call for us to rejoice in the Gospel. To rejoice in what God has done for us in our souls. Our boast and confidence isn't in our good works to standing before the Lord. Our, our, our boast and our confidence isn't in all of our righteous deeds which we have done. Rather, our, our boast and our confidence is in Christ Jesus who lived the perfect life, died upon the cross for our sins, so that by faith in Him we can have a righteousness that is not our own. And through faith in Him we can attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's why we worship in the Spirit of Christ Jesus. And we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And when this message of the Gospel takes root in our, our lives, we will rejoice. And, and when it takes root in the lives of others, we will rejoice as well. And when the, when the Gospel is spread, we're called to rejoice. We're called to rejoice even when the message is spread by those preaching with bad motives. Whenever, wherever, and however the Gospel is preached. The book of Philippians calls us to rejoice in the Gospel. Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. I just want to read through up to verse 22 with some, 
Some light commentary here. We see the letter begins with facts about who's writing and a common greeting. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's writing. Timothy's with him. He's writing to the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. He's writing to the church who is in Philippi. In verse 3, we see Paul opening with a word of thanks. How appropriate for us this Thanksgiving weekend. But he's thankful to God for the way that God has worked in the lives of the Philippians. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. The, the church in Philippi believed in the Gospel. They joined with Paul in the mission of spreading the Gospel. The, the church in Philippi grew as people were sharing the Gospel with others and others came to believe. And uh, Paul and they supported Paul in his <clears throat> greater missionary endeavors. And Paul was thankful and joyful to the Lord for that. And, and then he continues in verses 6-8 through eight about his, his love and a care for them. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And we see there that this is no impersonal business form letter. No, this is a letter born out of strong relationship between Paul and the Philippians. God had begun a good work in them. God would continue that work in them. And Paul loved them for this because they had a bond that they shared in God's grace with Paul. As it says there in verse 7, you're partakers of grace with me. We, we've come to know the grace of God I have and you all have as well. We're in this together. And so Paul prayed for them. The contents of his prayer come in verses 9 through 11. In this I pray, he says, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a prayer for growth and godliness. Paul was praying that they'd increase in their knowledge of God. He was praying that they would increase in their discernment of how they might love others most effectively. He was praying that they'd be sincere and blameless and praying that the Lord would continue this work that He had begun in them. And then the letter in verse 12 takes a turn. He has been talking about um, just his thanks to God for them and for the Philippians and what God has done. But now in verse 12, he, he turns from his relationship with those in Philippi to his own situation. As I said earlier, Paul's under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier, but far from being a hindrance to the gospel, it's actually caused the spread of the gospel. And he longs that those in Philippi would see his situation correctly. They might easily say, oh, Paul's in prison. Oh, woe is Paul. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's a good thing. Verse 12, I want you to know, brethren. You can just even see his encouragement there. I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. And Paul's imprisonment caused a greater progress for the Gospel than would have happened had he been free and loose. 
First of all, his imprisonment. Through that, he was able to share the gospel of the whole Praetorian Guard, the whole palace guard. Soldiers were chained to him, and he certainly told them about the gospel. And some believed and went. And some probably said, who is this kook? And went and then spoke about the gospel. And soon it became known throughout the whole palace guard. In chapter 4, verse 22, we even see the gospel was known through Caesar's household, something that never would have taken place had Paul not been imprisoned. What might have looked like a hindrance to the gospel is actually a, a means through which God spread the gospel. And that wasn't the only way the gospel had wings. The fact that Paul was in prison and bullied others to speak. They, they reason like this, if Paul's willing to suffer for preaching the gospel, then certainly I can as well. And Paul's suffering caused others to be willing to suffer as well. And so the gospel was, had greater progress and Paul's imprisonment became the means of this. You know, and that's, that's often how God works. We just need to reflect here is that, is that you give of your resources and God entrusts you with more than you ever had before. Or you plant a church by sending a third of your church away to, to plant in some new community. And a year later, you have more people than you ever had before you sent a third of your church away. That's how God works. In an effort to share the gospel with a, a cannibalistic tribe of people in Ecuador, you and four of your closest friends are speared to death on a beach in Ecuador. And that launches a missionary movement among thousands of young people of a passion to go to the most difficult places to, in the world to spread the gospel. It's how God works. It's just, it's just strange. It's just different. Proverbs 11, verse 24 says this, the one who, There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Or Genesis 37 through 50, right? You hate your brother, you sell him into slavery, and God uses him as the means to rescue your family from the famine that's come upon the land. You meant evil, but God meant good. Paul's imprisonment to stop the gospel being spread, and the gospel spreads like wildfire. Or the story of Jesus, right? You kill the righteous Messiah because you hated him. But it was his very death that became the means of your salvation. It's how God works. Paul's imprisonment was intended to stop the gospel, but it became the means by which the gospel spread further. Now, now all was not good. It says in verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Apparently, there are some people who are taking advantage of Paul being in prison and were preaching the gospel from bad motives. I'm thinking maybe that's just to build up their own ministries in an attempt to agitate Paul, but it, it didn't agitate Paul. Paul saw the gospels going forth and he said in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether good motives or bad motives, whatever the circumstances, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. As long as Christ was proclaimed, Paul was rejoicing. As long as Jesus Christ crucified was being heralded, Paul found joy. That's the theme of the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 18. Rejoice in the gospel. Paul rejoices whenever, wherever, and however the gospel advances. The call of Philippians, this book upon our lives, is the same. 
At Rock Valley Bible Church, listen, wherever the gospel advances, when people are believing in Christ, when people are spreading the good news about Jesus, we ought to rejoice. And then in verses 19 and 20, he returns to his own situation and speaks about his hope for release from prison. So it says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul knows as the, the Gospel continues to have more and more influence in the society, his opportunity for release from jail is better and better all the time. And In fact, Paul has hope that he'll be delivered from jail, just, just flat out. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you, you see two themes develop. Um, you see Jewish opposition to the Gospel and you see the, the Roman commitment to justice. And the, the Jews were hostile towards Paul and the Gospel. That's the reason why Paul was in prison. That's the reason why they were bringing charge against Paul. They wanted him to lose his head for the message he was spreading. But the Jews had no authority to execute capital punishment. But the Romans, on the other hand, were committed to the due process of the law. And over and over and over again, three times in the book of Acts, the, the Roman kings, the Roman emperors, the Roman Caesars declare that Paul was innocent. And Paul could see what was going on and he was fully expecting to stand before a Roman trial and be exonerated of his charges. But you never know what's going to happen in a court of appeals. Maybe a bribe comes. Maybe some turn of events come. And so Paul was pondering his own life or death. Here he is facing trial that may get him executed. And he says those famous words in verse 21, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul is saying is this, is even if I'm not released from prison, even if I lose my head on the chopping block, that's not such a bad thing. In fact, for the Apostle Paul, death wasn't a bad thing. In fact, he said it's better to die than to live. To me, to live is Christ, and that's wonderful. But to die is gain. That is, dying is better than living. You know, in life, there are many wonderful things. Many wonderful things in life. And if you know the Savior, life only gets better. You can live free of condemnation. You can live free of fear. You can live a life of genuine joy even amidst great trials in your life. Because when the Lord is with you, you are secure in His hands. And, and there's a way that you can live as a believer in Christ, which is a, as a steady, trustworthy, completely trusting God, worry-free life. Happy, joyful life. To live as Christ. But listen, something better awaits those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And something's better is death. Death is better than life. As Paul said, to die is gain. Because when we die, we go to be with Jesus face to face. When we die, we're freed of our sinful bodies. We're given spiritual bodies. When we die, we go to the, the heavenly Jerusalem where the pearly gates are there and there's streets of gold. When we die, we enter into the presence of God where there are pleasures forevermore. And for those of us who trust in Christ, we die, we go to paradise. That's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross who sought Him. He said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. To die is gain. That promise, though, does apply only to those who are trusting in Jesus. You know, I've been to many funerals in my life. And uh, one of the things I think that I've heard more, more times than anything else at funerals is this, is that 
that whatever the corpse is there and uh, or they're thinking about the the deceased and they say well he's in a better place or she's in a better place and in many ways a way to find comfort and in many ways many times a lie it's a flat out lie i say that because many times i've been to funerals where the deceased didn't believe in jesus had no interest in jesus or his word no interest in jesus or his people living a life for their own pleasures, not living a life for His glory, and yet they die and then they say, well, He's in a better place or she's in a better place. They're not. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man lived it up and paid no attention to the poor. And Jesus said that when He died, He was in torment, so much so that He wanted just a tip of a finger on His tongue so as to relieve the the coolness of the agony of the flame. And so terrible was the torment that He, he begged Father Abraham to, to send someone to warn his brothers of the danger, the, the fate, the torment that is coming. And Jesus constantly spoke about those who refused to believe in his name as spending eternity in a place where he was weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, Jesus spoke more of the terrors of hell than he did the glories of heaven. But I, I say this to say this dying is only gain when you're living is Christ. But if, if your living is not Christ, dying is not gain. If your living is not Christ, well, you've lived your best life now. Uh, I know why people say he's in a better place or she's in a better place because they're trying to find comfort in a comfortless world. But there's only one group of people that can genuinely have comfort. It's those who've trusted in Christ. Only those who've trusted in Christ can say, can it be said of them, well, he is in a better place. Or she is in a better place. And to that we could say, Hallelujah, Amen. That is exactly right. Because He died faithful in Jesus, He is with Him right now face to face in a place that's far better than what we have. And that's Paul's circumstance. He was in Christ. And I, I hope that's yours. I hope you're believing in Christ so that your death is gain. The opportunity for salvation is, is there before all of us. Week in, week out, the Gospel is proclaimed here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Maybe you can hear it on the radio. Maybe you can read it in books. Maybe you can read it in the Bible which sits and collects dust on your, your table. But he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But I say this, for if you truly believe in Jesus, if living is Christ, dying is gain. And so let's, let's grasp that. Let's believe that. Let's trust that. Because Paul goes on even to say this. Verse 22, he's contemplating his, his own life. He says, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. Here's my first point this morning after our long introduction. I'm calling it the dilemma. The dilemma. It's Paul's dilemma. He's ready to die. He's contemplating his death. He's contemplating losing his head at the hand of a Roman executioner. And he's really thinking about life and death. In fact, even before he wrote this book of Philippians, he, he told the elders at, at, in Ephesus, he traveled to Jerusalem knowing that bonds and afflictions awaited him. He said this, I do not consider my life of any count as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the grace, gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, verse 24. It, my life isn't dear to myself. I just want to finish the course and testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I want to do. 
And long before he's ever arrested, long before he ever stepped foot in Rome, he knew that his life wasn't his own. He entrusted himself to the Lord. He'd been bought with a price. Therefore, he was seeking to glorify God in all that he did. He knew that his life was expendable. He was ready to die. And yet living wasn't too bad of an option for him. He says this in verse 22, If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yes, dying is gain, but living is fruitfulness. And both are good options. You either gain or you have a life of fruitfulness. You know, something we speak about with one another, and we use this phrase, catch-22. Right? I'm between a rock and a hard place. It means I'm in a, a tight spot, which anything I do is going to be bad. You remember when G, the chief priests and elders were accusing Jesus? and said, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you if you answer this question. By what authority John the Baptist do his things, the baptism of John from heaven or from men. And, and these chief priests and authorities were in catch-22 because they said, well, if we say from heaven, they'll say, why didn't you believe me? And they say from men, they, they feared the crowds because they believed John the Baptist was a, a prophet. And so either option was unfavorable, they didn't know what to do. And so since both of them were bad, they said, I don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you either. But Paul's dilemma here is an opposite catch-22. He's not between a rock and a hard place. He's between a pillow and a soft place. Wherever he falls, do I fall on this side? Poof. It's easy. Or do I fall on this side? Poof. It's good. Living is Christ. Dying is gain. Living is fruitful labor. But dying is better. He didn't know what to choose. He was in this dilemma, right? That's what he says in verse 22. I do not know which to choose. Now, it's not that Paul had a real choice in the matter. He wasn't saying, okay, I'm going to choose life or I'm going to choose death. That's, that's not it at all. Paul was in prison awaiting trial. Caesar would hear the case. He would hand down the verdict. He didn't let Paul go free or put him to death. Paul wasn't contemplating suicide saying, oh, maybe I'll die or I'm kill myself or maybe I'll, I'll live. He, w- he wasn't contemplating suicide. He was contemplating his upcoming trial. He either get thumbs up and be released or thumbs down and be executed. The choice wasn't his, but if he was to make a choice, he didn't know because both options are good. I need to tell you the story of a, a month ago when we're talking about living as Christ, dying as gain. I, I used the illustration about uh, children. I said, do you want cookies or do you want ice cream? Right? Which do you like? Just do you want? And just to show you how kids can be listening, little Thatcher here, who's not even four yet, was in the service, and he came up to me after the service and he said, "Where's the ice cream?" <laughs> but he knew of the. He heard sugar. He heard ice cream. He heard candy, and he was really excited about that. But that was Paul's choice. Between candy and ice cream, he didn't know which, which he preferred, right? Like, like even today, the, the treasure box for the kids. We don't normally do this, parents. I hope you'll, you'll excuse me. But the treasure box for the kids we're going to choose today, there's, there's Snickers, or there's Milky Way, or there's Twix, or there's Twizzlers, or there's... Kids, how are you going to choose? So Paul's situation was like, I don't, I don't know which to choose. And so he presents both sides. He says, living is a good thing. Verse 22. He says, verse 23, I'm hard pressed from both directions. I've got this desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Here's my second point. A heart to depart. He had this heart that 
that wanted to depart this life. Analuo, just to, to, to get up and, and get out of this life, like, like a, a ship leaving the port. I just want to, I want to get away from this life. He says, I have a desire to die. Again, not that I'm going to kill myself, but he wanted to die as a martyr, dying in service to the Lord. He says, that is my epithemia, my strong desire, oftentimes used of sinful desire. This is my strong passion. I have this desire just to depart, get out of this life. Because I know that absence with the body is present with the Lord, and I want to be present with the Lord. By the way, parentheses here. We see here what takes place when you die in the Lord. You immediately go into His presence. Paul wanted to depart and to be with Christ. There are some, particularly Seventh-day Adventists, who advocate the doctrine of soul sleep. That is, when you die, your soul goes to sleep until the final judgment, when you're either rewarded or condemned. Um, but that's not in the Bible. Rather, what's in the Bible is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you die, you go into the presence of Christ the moment you die. And you'll have a conscious state until the final judgment. Like Lazarus and the rich man. They died, but they were fully conscious, fully awake and awaiting the judgment. Like the martyrs underneath the altar of Revelation chapter 5. They were fully conscious. They were begging that God would avenge their blood. And they were the souls there. Their, their body was in the grave, but their souls were very much alive. Or like Moses and Elijah who visited Jesus upon the Mount of Transfiguration. They were fully conscious and fully speaking with Jesus about His upcoming death in Jerusalem. See, when you die, your soul doesn't sleep. Rather, you die when you die in the Lord. You're with Him awaiting the final judgment and your ultimate redemption. And that's what Paul wanted. Paul wanted to be with Jesus. And so, listen, he was even desirous to hear the words from Caesar, put this man to death. In fact, Paul preferred death to life. If you look, that's what he says. He says, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. The New American Standard really reflects the Greek on this. right? He uses a triple superlative. He didn't just say death is better. He didn't say death is much better. He said death is very much better. Three modifiers to make a point. Death for the Christian is gain. I remember when I was in seminary, this was 22 years ago, 23 years ago, in that that range, uh, John MacArthur had knee surgery, and um, I think it was at that point, uh, and and he had some blood clots in his knees. And as maybe you don't know, knee surgery is very dangerous, or blood clots particularly, they can come up and get into your heart and stop your heart, they can be very, very dangerous, and for a while, the doctors didn't know if John MacArthur would survive his knee surgery or not. And MacArthur's comment was, when I awoke, I was a little bit disappointed. He was fully ready to die. Cast off the worries of his life and this ministry when you see Jesus face to face. And yet, since that time, God has given him 20 more years of faithful, fruitful labor. And that was Paul's dilemma. Like verse 22, right? If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And MacArthur's attitude is a good one to have. Ready to die, and yet God doesn't take him. Ready to labor. That's what he's done. So on the one hand, Paul had this heart to depart, verse 23. On the other hand, Paul had my third point, a view to continue. I worked hard 
to get that continue word. That that took a long time. A heart to depart, a view to continue. That's what he's talking about, verses twenty four through twenty six. Just this, this heart to just keep on living. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. In other words, Paul says this. He says, "Dying is better for me. Living is better for you." In fact, his situation, Paul says, his living was necessary for you. It was more necessary for you. In some way, the Philippians needed Paul. They needed his ministry, his labor, his life, his love, and his prayers. And Paul would play a crucial role in their lives. We see that in verse 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul was convinced that, that God would preserve his life for the sake of others. He would preserve his life for the sake of the Philippians so that they would make further progress in their faith. They would grow in their faith. They would deepen in their faith. Paul's life would lead the Philippians to further joy in the faith. That they would be happier. That they would be more content. That there would be this greater swell of joyfulness in their body because of Paul's presence with them. And again, you see this, right? Paul would lead the Philippians to rejoice in the Gospel. You see that theme coming up again and again. And Paul knew that his release, in his release, he'd see the Philippians again. And seeing them would lead them to greater faith. That's what verse 26 talks about. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, the New American Standard here has misplaced two words. I don't know why they put this in me where they did. Better is verse 26 we read like this, so that your proud confidence may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. In other words, that, that Paul's coming to them again would be the means through which their confidence in Christ would increase. It's not that, that their confidence would be in Paul, as the New American Standard reads, rather that their confidence would be in Christ more and more as Paul would come to them again. And Paul has this in mind as he considers his life and his death. He says, my death is better for me, but my life is better for you. And so why did Paul want to live? Because of the spiritual benefit that it would bring others. And and I think you really need to catch this. The reason why Paul wanted to live is because he put the interests of others above himself. What Paul's going to call us to do in Philippians chapter 2. Look over there, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And Paul was living that at this moment as he thought about his life and his death. He considered the interests of the Philippians above his own interests. His own interest would be his death. My death is better for me. But since my life is more important for you, and since you are more important than me, I will live on. Now, what's interesting is for the Lord Jesus, this was exactly opposite. His death was better for us than his living on. That's why verse 8 Philippians chapter 2, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The death of Jesus was the means of life for us. Jesus died for us. He set His heart upon our interests. And in His case, it was better for Him to willingly face death on the cross. 
And in God's providence, we will look at those verses the Sunday before Christmas. Perfect. The incarnation. We're going to talk about that then. I I look forward to that. But getting back to our text, Paul had this view to continue, this view to remain on in the flesh, motivated totally by a heart to serve others. Now, my message this morning, I'm not sure if you've seen it, is entitled The Christian Dilemma. And I say this, that Paul's dilemma is the dilemma of every Christian. It's the dilemma of everyone who's placed their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And I say this, if we really would believe the, the glories that awaited us in heaven, we would long for death. Like, if there's something you're really longing to do, right? Some, some vacation or some purchase you want to make. It isn't, don't you want to just do it now? And if it was in your capability to do it now, wouldn't you do it like now? Like, let's get it now. I mean, we're so much. Let's, let's please yourself now. And our pleasures in heaven will be far greater than any pleasures we have here on earth. If we'd really be convinced of that, I think that we'd have this attitude that Paul had. This dilemma about, well, should I live or should I die? Which, which, do, I really, which do I really like? Which do I really want? In fact, the glories of heaven are, are hard for me to describe. I, I can't... I, I, Reminded of a conversation, one of my favorite conversations that Christian and Pliable had in um, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian just heard the message about um, the destruction of the city of destruction and how he needs to go to the wicked gate in order to go on to the celestial city. And as he, as he launched out, Pliable came running after him and they were on their way. And they have this conversation. Very first thing Pliable talks about is about the city where they're going. And Pliable says, Come now, neighbor Christian, since there's none but us two here, tell me now, Father, what the things are and how to be enjoyed where we're going. Tell us about this place where we're going. Christian says, I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue. But since your desire is to know, I'll read of them in my book. Pliable says, And do you think the words of your book are certainly true? Christian says, yes, verily, for it was made by him that cannot lie. Pliable, well said. Well, what what things are they? Christian said this, there is an endless kingdom to be inhabited and everlasting life to be given us that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Pliable said, well said. And what else? So Christian goes on. There are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. The Bible says this is very pleasant. And what else? Where there shall be no more crying nor sorrow for he that is the owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. The Bible says, and what company shall we have there? Christian says, there we shall be with seraphims and cherubims. Creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look at them. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in His presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. There we will see the holy virgins with their golden harps. There we shall see men that by the world were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas, for the love they bore to the Lord of that place, all well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. 
pliable says the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. But are, are, are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to be sharers thereof? And Christian said this, the Lord, the governor of the country, has recorded in his book the substance of which is, if we be truly willing to have it, he will bestow upon us freely. Pliable then says, well, my good companion, glad am I to hear these things. Come on, let us mend our pace. Let us get going so we can get to that celestial city. And I think that if we truly would grasp all the glories that await us in heaven for those who have trusted in Christ, we would have a healthy longing for death. We would, to use Pliable's words, mend our pace to the grave. But, I say this on the flip side, if we truly understand the purpose of our lives here on earth, that it's not for ourselves, but it's for other people, then we will have a healthy longing for life that would serve other people till our dying day. This is a dilemma we should face each and every day. A healthy longing for death that when we can come face to face with Christ my Savior, oh, what a day that will be. When with rapture I behold Him, as the hymn says. But we should have a healthy longing to serve others in this life. And, and catch this, our longing to serve others surpasses our longing for death and the glories of heaven. And again, this isn't suicidal death. I mean, suicide is eminently selfish. Not thinking about others which you will leave behind. But rather, this is death in the service of the Lord. This is, this is death like Stephen who preached the Gospel and was stoned saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This, this is the death like Revelation 12.11 and they overcame the accuser because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is the kind of death we're talking about. That, that risking death. That, that going for it kind of death in service to the Lord. That is our dilemma. How are we going to live? How are we going to die? Are we longing for death? Are we longing for life? Do you know anything of this dilemma? Or is this world so captivated you that you don't think about the day of your death? I know one of my, my aims and roles as a pastor is to prepare you for that day. Is to bring eternity into our presence. Paul, this isn't the only place that Paul wrote about this battle. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9, through 9, he says this, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. When we're home, we're at, when we have our bodies, we are absent from the Lord. I was very aware that I was absent from home when I was in India. Yvonne was at home, all the kids were at home, and that's, that's where my heart was, that's where I could talk and commune. We talked every morning and every night. We talked before I went to bed and she was up all day, and we talked after she was up all day, and um, then she was going to bed and I was going to be awake, and talking to the whole family is amazing from India to be able to talk. But I was very aware when I was home and away, and that I was away, and Paul says this, When we're at home in our body, we're absent from the Lord. And we ought to long to be with the Lord. He says, we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, Paul says, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. That is our preference. 
is to be absent from our body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether alive or dead, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. And here in the book of Philippians, Paul's merely working this out. He's in real danger of losing his head for preaching the Gospel and he's okay with that. But he knows the benefit his life will bring to others. And that he'll be able to point them to Jesus and he knows that in his life right now that is very much better and he will live on. Now, how about you? Are you ready to die? When the plane lands smoothly, is there, is there any bit of disappointment in your heart that says, hmm, missed that chance to go be with the Lord? When you awaken from surgery, is there disappointment in your heart? Like, well, it may be you haven't placed your faith in Christ. And maybe you don't know where you're going when you die. I say trust Him. Let your fear of death fade away and let it be an attractive thing. I say Rock Valley Bible Church, May your heart to serve others give you a vibrancy in this life as long as the Lord gives you. Let's pray and entrust these words to the Lord. Father, I pray that we would see our life and our death as they should be seen. That living is, is all for the glory of Christ. What a wonderful thing is it that the Lord of the universe offers the glories of heaven to those who would but repent of their sins and believe in Christ. To have a place that's so far more attractive in this world. It's all a gift of Your grace, not by deeds which we've done in righteousness, have earned or merited it in any way, but it's according to the glorious grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray You'd give us a right perspective of death. Give us a right perspective of our deaths. And I pray also we would have a willingness to serve that would even overcome that desire. That we would pour out our life, not considering it as dear to ourselves, but would look to the interests of others rather than ourselves and spend and be spent and and labor on to find that it's joy to do the Master's will. Because You have bought us. He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. You died for us, O Lord, that we would live for You. Help us this day to think through our dilemma of living and dying and understand it appropriately, O Lord. It's you who need to persuade our hearts. I pray, God, that you would do that. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.